sought-after cinematographer working with documentary directors like Laura Poitras and Michael Moore, the curious and compassionate camera work of today's guests can be seen in films like The Oath, Fahrenheit, 9-11, and Citizen Four. As a nonfiction director, she's known for approaching the subject of her work with inspirational ingenuity. Her 2016 directorial feature, Camera Person, is a memoir and narrative collage of the world as seen through her eyes and filmed with her camera, but left out of other people's films. And her 2020 film, Dick Johnson is Dead, part tragicomedy, part love letter to her ailing father, and part portrait of her own grief, was recognized with a Sundance Special Jury Prize, the Critics' Choice Award, and a Primetime Emmy. She is one of the few women who have been invited into the American Society of Cinematographers, and more importantly to us, she is part of the Film That Blew My Mind family. Today, we are delighted to welcome the fabulous Kirsten Johnson, a.k.a. KJ, a.k.a. my wife, to share the film that blew her mind. Kirsten Johnson, welcome to our show. Um... It's time for the drum roll moment. <laughs> what, Kirsten Johnson, is the film that blew your mind? Wait, I have to tell the listening audience like how big I'm smiling uh, <laughs> to, for that introduction and the fact that I am your wife. Um, yeah, and it's showtime. The film that blew my mind was, uh, and it still is, All That Jazz. Wow. Oh, I know. I was Jazz so... hands in the studio. <laughs> I was so excited. When I heard this, because it is actually one of my film that blew my, you know, after doing this, I have like five or six, but it is one of mine as well. So I'm ex- very excited to get into it. Um, um, and Cooper, you you have a little bit of the dance inside, you know. I do. We'll probably get to that. Hopefully not right. too much because it'll get really boring and tedious <laughs> and sad. Um, but anyway, let's um, let's just so if no one's heard or seen this film, let's do a little of of of. Uh, of a recap of what the film is just to set the tone. So this is um, director choreographer, Bob Fosse tells his own life story as he details the sordid career of Joe Gideon, a womanizing chain smoking pill popping director choreographer. And he's putting, um, he's in rehearsal for a Broadway show um, is starring his ex-wife in the lead. So that's all part of the plot. And, um, it's basically he's directing a movie at the same time, but also in a kind of an alternate universe, he's flirting with death, literally um, telling, which is he's in this alter world with an oddly named Angelique and angel. You get it. It's like, so it's so like, there's not metaphor here, really. It's just straight out telling us what's going on here. Played by um, um, Jessica Lang. And so then he gets to recap parts of his life as he's going down this um, kind of a pathway to his own death, actually. His his overworked body, his workaholic life has caught up with him. So that's the main plot of all of this. It's an incredible film. Mm. I KJ, why why this one? Why did you choose yeah. it? Ooh. So many things I love about this movie and so many things that just boggle my mind about this movie. Um, But I think why me and why this movie um, 
connect to like who I was and who I hope to be. Um, so like the sort of overwhelming feeling I had when I first watched it was one of like, people can do this? How do people do this? Um, so there's like you an mean incredible in the making, sense of- In the it, making it, of the film like every, or- Every level, like people okay. can be people like this, people okay. can dance like this, people can have sex like this. It's like the everythingness of it um, was so thrilling to me on so many levels. And so part of it is like, just to like rewind, I definitely did not see it when it came out in 1979, even though I was like 15 years old in 1979. Um, I think it like just, you know, there are things I was in this very... Um, kind of closed religious world and wasn't allowed to see movies, but there were things that were coming in from the 1970s. So like I knew Patty Hearst had been kidnapped and was calling her parents capitalist pigs with a machine gun on television. And I knew Black Panthers existed and I knew there was Billie Jean King. And I think I vaguely knew that this movie called Alva Jazz won a lot of Oscars. Um, but I did not see it and was not allowed to see it. And it felt as far away as like the revolution. Um, so sort of, you know, Broadway to show people was a world that was um, a sinful world from where I was coming from. And I've worked really hard to remember when I saw it for the first time. I think I saw it for the first time in Paris and it made me really uncomfortable on so many levels. Um, I think in some strong way, because like I really um, identified with Bob Fosse, Bob <laughs> Fosse, the character in the movie and Bob Fosse, the director. And I aspired to identify with him. Um, Wait, can I just ask you as a, as a young Seventh Day Adventist young woman in Paris. How did you come to identify with Bob Fosse? <laughs> there is a jump. There is a jump there. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I think that's the sort of genius of this film. I think in some ways, like it's in so deep inside a human psyche that almost anyone can identify with Bob Fosse, even though it's impossible to be him. And many of us don't want to be him in any kind of way. But, um, you know, the journey was long <laughs> between um, the person I was and the person I was becoming. But I, I would say one thing that's sort of interesting is that um, almost all of the films that I saw and all of the novels that I read were written by men. All of the paintings that I love were made by men. And so there was like a strange way in which it was very easy for me to identify as a person who wished to be a, an artist with the idea of like, somehow um, I can do this, even though the only people I saw doing it were men. So there was like that weird um, way in which you position yourself all over the place in a movie like this. You relate to many different people in the movie. Um, but I think I always had this sort of almost hubris inside of me of like, yeah, I can do that. Uh, I want to do that. And then, of course, like, how how could I dare do that? How would I ever be able to do that? Well, we should we should 
have a look at that opening scene and remind us and let's get into the mood with that. There's a, a caveat, which is there is a lot of music and very <laughs> little no dialogue. dialogue, but it'll give us a give us a groove. Great, let's play the clip. no opening credits to this film there's a beautiful big broadway brassy music and um all that jazz written in big broadway lights and then you uh you come into this massive cattle call scene so um for those who don't know what a cattle call is cooper can you remember <laughs> yeah it's where they pile everybody in there to learn the routine because then you're, they're going to break you out into small groups and you have one chance at doing it in front of the director. And in this, it doesn't always happen this way, but in this film, he goes down and kind of filters people out as he goes. And sometimes he goes up to them personally and like gives them a word of assurance, like, you know, not for you today, baby, kind of thing. And and then he just narrows it down and narrows it down. So all these people right. and- dreams are getting sliced off as you go. <laughs> <laughs> and under that entire scene, which is pretty much wordless, is George Benson's On Broadway. So, KJ, yeah. why do you love this scene? Because I know you do. <sighs> I love so many things about this scene. What I love about the scene is, um, you know, this reveal of all of these people attempting to uh, dance. And the camera just, like that wide shot of everybody moving together, but not um, dancing well yet because the space is so crowded. It's like, for me, what it feels like is just like the desire of humans to make things. And just it's just desire. And it comes in so many different forms. And um, so for me, like this scene is, I think it goes on for like, six minutes or something without any dialogue and it's purely observational and you're really seeing real dancers um, warming up, trying to do moves. You see clumsy people, you see people who are incredibly graceful. And then you see this, you know, set of people watching and engaging with these people who are trying to do something. And um, I just, I love watching everybody, which is a little bit like what I love doing when I film and do camera work. And what's so amazing about this camera work, and I think in general throughout the movie and in Bob Fosse's work, is that he sort of you know comes from this language of choreography, goes into musical theater, then finds cinema, and then brings cinematic language back to choreography and does this sort of back and forth between choreography and cinematography so that by the end of the sequence, there's just these exuberant moments where the camera is underneath people jumping over it. There are people jumping in front of him crossing, but you are completely invested in this feeling of sweat and effort and people trying to do something. Um, But the big 
thing that I would say in the weird way that this connects to me is that um, one of my great fears as a young person attempting to imagine myself a filmmaker, I was really afraid that if I made work that it would hurt other people. Um, and I, this scene where he's picking and choosing people and mm. he's like, you know, saying yes to someone and no to someone else. For me, it created a whole like feeling of deep anxiety of like, oh, but I love all those people. How could you ever say no to any of those people? Mm. Um, so there's a real tension in the scene for me between this great sort of love of humanity and then this very strong aspirational, like that's stronger than that. That person's a better dancer than that person. You have to go. You really want this. And so he's not nice in all these ways. Like that I, I wanted to be nice as a person, but I wanted to be a strong creator and I couldn't sort of figure out how one could do that. Huh. It's uh Cooper, like you were saying, the, the, the scene as an opening to the film is also is also extraordinary because like exactly like you just said we got to meet all the characters um it's a beautiful way of setting something up with no with no words and then uh, he gave an interview bob fossey where he said um he wanted to make a small documentary which w- which would in some way capture what a cattle call was really like uh and it did feel though those documentary ele- elements and one of the other reasons i wanted to have KJ on the show is to is to hear from non-fiction directors as well um those little glances the people preparing feel absolutely real and authentic I think they were they these all these dancers were getting ready for a cattle call and there was a truth to that scene which was fascinating as well as Cooper I saw you pull your hands back as he did that huge reveal of the stage, starting in close and pulling back to that huge wide reveal. It's incredibly cinematic in fiction and nonfiction terms. Because you have no idea where we are. When that's starting, it's just like, where are we? What is this about? And then you see it and he reveals it. It's like a great reveal. You know, yeah. All those bodies moving. And I, I do love all the, the scenes where they're, but they're kind of warming up and you see everyone's little ticks and worries <laughs> and the, the, the look on people's faces of like, uh, you know, I hope the hope I get it scene. It's funny too. This came Broadway dancers had been revealed a lot in a chorus line, the musical before this. So there was a, a story of chorus dancers. And in that, in that, Broadway show it does really well. The the movie of Chorus Line comes out a few years later after this, but sort of Bob Fosse stole he stole the authenticity. So when Chorus Line the movie <laughs> came out, it wasn't it didn't look authentic in some ways. It looked like a, a Hollywood version of this, where this looked very true to Broadway at the time, I think. Well, and I think that's the other thing that I deeply love about it is its authenticity and the the like the stakes are real. Like the very opening thing is, you know, a man on a high wire and it's mm-hmm. like, you know, life, life is on the wire and that the rest I, of it is just waiting. Yeah. And that's actually a quote from, you know, Carl Walenda, who was a tightrope walker who the fell. flying Walendas, right. He fell and died the year before this was made. Ah. So it's a real illusion to like, this is life and death stakes And one of the other documentary parts of the movie is that 
Fosse casts all of these real people in his life um, so that the woman who is his assistant as a choreographer on stage is Catherine Doby, who was really his assistant. The editor is really Alan Heim, the editor. And Rankin, the girl who plays the girlfriend, was really Fosse's girlfriend. So there's this sense that people aren't just playing themselves, they are being. Right, Which is... Re- but they're recreating themselves in a time too. It's like, I, I just think Anne Ranking, how hard is that? Because I think she'd actually broken up with him by then, but right. now she has to go back in and play herself at an earlier age. And probably she thinks she was more naive then or whatever. <laughs> and she, being but she du- still shows herself as being really needy in it too, you know? And she's being directed by him. I mean, she's I playing opposite Roy Scheider, who's playing uh, Joseph Gideon. Uh but she's being directed by Bob, Bob Fosse. It just kind of boggles my mind, this, this interweaving of, of life and art and construction and artifice to get to a truth. It's that someone said about authenticity. It's the most important thing. And if you can fake that, you can fake anything. <laughs> well, and I mean, this is based on, you know, Fosse made Lenny, was editing Lenny, the movie and did have a heart attack in real life. And he made this film like fully from his own experience. And yet hilariously, uh, his editor says that he was in denial that it was actually him. He's like, (laughs) (laughs) which is so fantastic. Um, But one of the things that I really love about this movie also is its relationship to time. So, um, you know, his editor called it Fosse time. Uh, But it is about being in the, like, now, being in the present, but the present that includes all of your life and all of the people in it. And so there's a way in which every shot is just, it's alive in the present in this way that, you know, obviously in Chorus Line, that didn't happen, right? Right. It's uh, that, that is such a good point about time, because all the way through this movie, I was I was asking that question, uh, apart from like, wow, how did he get away with doing this? Uh, when is now? When is now? And the way you just put it, it's really powerful. Now is all the things you've done, the thing that you're heading towards, and whatever's in your mind about how you're thinking about your life. It's like, it's such a, it's such a crazy, I mean, this film is entirely non-linear, and so experimental with what he does with time um, that it's it's kind of incredible it got made in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think he, he was a force at that moment yeah, in history. Yeah. You know, he'd won Tonys, he'd won Emmys, he'd won Oscars, and he was- All a, in the same year, right? Yeah, and he was a great, great choreographer. Um, mm-hmm. So that I think, and it was also the 70s where all kinds of things were possible and, you know, like, to go back to sort of Fosse time, mm-hmm. um, I feel like it's consciousness. Like we're in consciousness, we're in human consciousness. And um, as certainly in some ways, like as I experience it, and we're also in bodies. And so I think that's the other thing that I really love about it is um, how body centered the whole movie is. Um, and that you're sort of constantly changing camera angles to think about what a body is and what it's capable of doing or not capable of doing. Um, and 
that like you almost feel like it's it's stretching you or pulling you and um you know i'm i i think that there's this sense of like can you do it can you go as far as the movie wants you to go is being asked of you as well as being asked of the dancers mm-hmm. and the whole that whole device of of going to you know the altar reality where you know it's in talking to the angel and she he has to be completely honest with her. So that's why we get, cause he's such a liar in the real in real life and tells people what to get, what he wants, mostly sex most of the time. But, but you, he has to come clean on that. So you get to see that side of him. It's very raw. And without that, it would be very hard to make this movie. So the device serves this film so well. I mean, I think he wants so many things. Um, and he, he, he wants comfort. He wants connection. He wants humor. He wants eye contact. I mean, I love the relationship between um, him and the woman who's playing Gwen Verdon, his life, his wife, you know, his ex-wife, who was this incredibly powerful force in his life, but who could also sort of see him for the manipulative mm-hmm. uh, person that he was. And so, you know, Leland Palmer, who plays the role, is like often just looking at him with the sort of look of like, I see you. And the movie sees her seeing him um, in that fantastic scene where they're doing the read through of the script and it it's completely oh silent. <laughs> and it's only his, you're in his mind of like the smell, you know, sort of the sound of the cigarette uh, the pencil, pencil breaking, breaking and she's staring at him and people are laughing, but he doesn't hear the laughter because it's not funny to him. And he doesn't like this show, really. That's what's kind of interesting. He's not, he's, he's having a hard time with this show. It's not from him like, like his other films and, and plays were. This is one where he's sort of almost a gun for hire and it's, he's can't find it, which I love that part where he's just... Yeah, he's trapped in it and trapped yeah. into having to like, you know, let his wife be the star, yeah. uh, that it's cheesy. Like he, mm-hmm. you know, he's trying to live up to his best self, but the, you know, the money pressure, the time pressure. And I think, you know, in some ways, like that's the core of cinema is like money pressure, time pressure, right. and then like your vision, which you don't even recognize when you see it. And all of those forces are just like, you know. And- pressing together so strongly. I think one of the things that um, got me about this film also is it the the buildup of tension. So the the his morning routine, which is the which is the dexedrine, the eye drops, the teeth cleaning, the it's bottle showtime scope. folks. There's always a the bottle coughing, of scope and the dexedrine. Smoking. That's yeah. right, smoking. the smoking shower, the shower. <laughs> it's just it just uh, ramps up. So there's this relentless routine and it's showtime folks ramps up the pressure and he's under pressure from so many quarters. Yes, he's making this documentary, which is based on Lenny that he was really making. He's he's writing this musical, which I think was Chicago rather than rather than cabaret that that um that he's trying to put on at the same time. And you I can feel my heart beating faster. It's like um Oh, it's unrelenting. And he's and looking worse and worse as time goes looks, on and he's coughing yeah, harder and, he, and harder. He keeps yeah. holding his left arm, like the signal of like he's yeah. feeling these pains. His body is his body is breaking down totally and he's but denying is, it all. But it's incredible also because 
this is ultimately, he makes the film about himself. People have called it, it's it's his eight and a half. It's a kind of Fellini-esque mm-hmm. thing. And also he worked with the um, the cinematographer who also worked with with Fellini. So it's got this Giuseppe thing. Giuseppe now. Oh, get you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. So he's got this, he's already earned... Um, earned the license to look at his own life in this spectacularly creative, um, immersive consciousness kind of way that you refer to KJ. Uh, And it is ultimately about him going towards death, doing all the wrong things, trying to be the right person, but going towards death um, from a heart attack. Bob Fosse actually dies of a heart attack. Uh, falls into the so it's a pre only like eight years later after that's this. right and so. he was young he was I think he was sixty when he died or something uh, and it was as you say it was close so this 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 act of cinema which is the most incredible expressive maximalist which is why uh, I am drawn to both this film and to KJ the maximalism in in both of you form breaking but it's actually also a com- absolute prefiguring of what will happen to him shortly. It's kind of astonishing. Well, I think the self-awareness that's running through the film is incredibly strong. And I I do think the film is nevertheless still Mm self-serving. Like I do think he, he comes off not as monstrous. He comes off as more charming than manipulative. Like there's never a moment where he's like truly hideous. I think we stay grounded in uh, identification with him. With, um, with, and I can imagine, with flawed humanity. Yeah. But I think for me, that's part of why I was so um, like upset by it when I initially saw it. And then why I grow to love it more in the watching and rewatching of it, because I think this sort of willingness to the extent that one can to, to, reveal oneself to reveal one's capacities as well as one's shames and self-loathings and behavior that like might hurt other people or does hurt Mm -hmm. other people. Like that whole range Mm -hmm. of humanity is definitely in the film. Um, And there's, I'm sure there are people who knew him who would say he didn't go far enough. enough. Um, But but there's another way in which he went further than almost any of us could imagine going because he had these tools. He had like the tools of choreography, the tools of his relationship to cinematography and editing. The editing is insanely great in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And he had all of those tools that he was deploying at this level that express huge aspiration which i think it's very hard for humans to actually express the like grandiosity of our aspiration um and i find that very touching um this like really big big thing and you know um the final number which is bye bye life it goes on for 10 minutes it's like <laughs> i'm going no i'm not going no, no i'm still not going i'm almost okay, dead I- i'm almost dead no i'm back <laughs> <laughs> my heart is still beating in some ways he made this film as an apology too in some ways to all those people it's like like maybe that's why they're all in it too it's like he 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 copped to treating people like shit all the time i, I do i know what you mean though he made it probably softer than there were days probably when he was absolutely impossible but but he kept that light i mean 
maybe we should we do that clip now because the clip is yeah. where he's showing a different side of himself that is like the sweetest part of the movie for me i think so um, t- cooper set this up a little this bit. is the um the um i don't want to give away the 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 line but this is where he's in rehearsal and with his girlfriend and we yeah, have with his newest girlfriend yeah not his girlfriend <laughs> now yeah she's <laughs> with someone he picked out of the casting uh, the cattle call line well, and it was like hello <laughs> and i will even say remember when the guy said i need a soprano she's tone deaf and he goes with those legs <laughs> <laughs> what else do you need? And then the, another go. Then he says some line about, uh, "I think the guy in the blue eyeshadow can hit the high notes, or something like that." It's just they have all these little quips in the, in this movie totally. that are really funny, you know, that are truthful. But let's hear the clip of this part. It's kind of self-explanatory. They're in rehearsal, and she's not getting it. A five, six, seven, eight. Lay back, Victoria. Lay back. Lay back! Hold it, hold it. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're right. I'm terrible. I know I'm terrible. I look at the mirror and I'm embarrassed. Maybe I should quit. I, I just can't like, seem to do anything right. Listen, I can't make you a great dancer. I don't even know if I can make you a good dancer. But if you keep trying and don't quit, I know I can make you a better dancer. And I'd I'd like very much to do that. Stay. Are you going to keep yelling at me? Five, six, seven, eight. One and two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two. Better. <laughs> That's a, that is such a great scene because you if well there's a few things about that scene that what the first is you know i was a dancer then and it became sort of almost a a, a joke phrase we say to each other something lay back victoria became like uh <laughs> <laughs> it's like it became like this thing it was like when you weren't doing something right you know where it's like a joke but also you actually see in that scene where you know the the lay the layout that she does bending her back is half-assed and then when she does it finally it looks different and you see you get to be part of the process that's the only time you really see that in the in the film is that's the moment where this is what a choreographer does and pushes people and how they have to hit moves and to become great it's it's a great scene lay back victoria i mean for me it's it shows people sweating it shows people like going beyond what they think they're capable of doing it, it, it also like, I mean, I've filmed, um, people dancing, um, a great deal throughout, uh, my career as a camera person. And I feel like dancers are among the hardest working artists, uh, that exist. Like they just, you know, are 
always stretch, literally stretching and leaping and sweating. And then that moment when she, she is able to lay back and her eyes are still like pink and messed up and she's so vulnerable. She, she doesn't know if she's done well enough and she's waiting for that moment of approval from him. Uh, but then everyone sort of erupts in this like collective moment of joy because everyone is giving that much all the time. And then collectively they get to celebrate that like she did more than she was capable of. Um, so I find that sort of, it's just like euphoric, that collectivity of dance in this case. But I think in some ways I think of cinema as that. Mm. That it's always this collectivity of people trying to communicate, trying to do hard things together. And we sort of know how hard it is. And when like somehow we broke through and did something, it feels like such a celebration. Um, but then also I, it's maybe one of those moments where he has directed his own character to be the person who is here. I mean, clearly he did in real life. He was an incredible choreographer. But the way he interacts with her, so he's very, you know, it's tough love at the beginning. And then he goes up to her when she's crying and says, sorry. And then the, just the real talk of, uh, Cooper, you can do the lines. I can I, I make, what does he say? Can I make you a better dancer? I can't no, I can't make you, make you dan- a great dancer. Can't make you a great dancer. I can't even make you a good dancer, I think. Right. Yeah, I, I can make but you I can better I can make you a better dancer. Um, and the, the 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 little details. So he comes off well from that scene. Yes. Um, I also love the details of him just coughing all the time. He's got a cigarette in his mouth pretty much all the way through this movie, um, uh, including when he's in the shower, <laughs> including yeah. when he's in the shower. But just these 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 moments are um, so beautifully rendered but he comes out of that one looking Tab, i don't i don't think he necessarily come i think he comes off as complicated i think you see him i think roy schneider's performance is incredibly nuanced and i think you see him being like oh god damn it i gotta go and like be nice to her now right. i don't have time to do this uh-huh. you see him lie to her and say sorry because he knows he has to bring her back from the brink he i think there's for me there's always a really multiple layered uh, sense of like, this isn't good behavior or bad behavior. This is like behavior that people are engaged with to try to do this hard thing that nobody really knows the parameters of. And so that even that line of like, I don't know if I can, like, I don't know if I'm even capable (laughs) of getting you to be a better dancer. Like, I don't know if I can make something of this lousy show. Um, Mm -hmm. All of that feels like what is Fosse's actual internal experience while he is making this movie, as well as making the documentary that's in the movie, as well as putting on the musical comedy, like all of it, he's in a state of being out on wire and not knowing whether it's all going to come together or not. Right. Um, so, so even though he has this like love of precision and like knows it'll be better if she lays back a little bit more, yeah. but he doesn't know how far, like if he pushes too far, he knows she's going to break. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It, it feels, it all feels more complicated to me than that. I don't think he ever looks good in this movie. Really? <laughs> no. It's- well, because Roy Scheider is such an amazing 
Yeah, actor. talk about that. When when he yeah. was cast in this, I was thought Roy Scheider as Bob Fosse. He's not a dancer. How is he ever going to be able to play this? And I know, but does. you know, there's Richard Dreyfus first. He's so amazing. He's so amazing yeah. in it, and he looks he, perfect. I mean, talk to me about that because it really does seem like Roy is a dancer. You feel him carry his body as a dancer. Like, how do you? How did they do that? I don't know. He's just the the sinewiness of him, yeah. you know, is is so perfect. And but he did talk about how nervous he was having to perfect this. He had to pull right. off looking like a dancer and a choreographer. Um, which well, which you he show did up and- on set and go, and now slip into this, and it's like a, <laughs> a it's a you know a unitard. It's <laughs> just like I'm used to wearing like an army uniform or you know a rugged guy. He sure like, knows how to wear a hat. That yeah, is for sure. Yeah, like yeah. Oh, Cooper! Before we before we move on, you said this was one of the film that blows your mind. Um, yeah. Why? Well, it was it was what 1979. Mm. Um, that was the year I moved to New York to be a dancer, and so oh seriously, so I was <laughs> I was there, and we we saw this. You know, every dancer in town went to see this movie. You know, it was like a big deal. Um, and we'd all, you know, I had auditioned for Bob Fosse before too. So what? You know, I, oh, come on, tell yeah. us about that. <laughs> I was horrible. I was a weird, the guy, the weird guy, all dressed in black who like <laughs> messes up. No, he was. It was a very simple audition. I remember, and you were cut really fast. It was, but it was a very simple um, pattern. He was just looking. Did you for make it. eye contact with him? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I did. Him and and Michael Bennett. They were the two kind wow. of rival, you wow. know, big choreography people and. And who in this film is played by John Lithgow. So I think that great. was Bob. I kept trying to figure out if yeah. that was really Michael Bennett or not. It didn't seem quite right. It seemed like a blend mm. of characters. Mm-hmm. I know. I wanted to know who those producers were too, because you know, <laughs> yeah. those were specific, you know, yes. and I used to, cause I, how I knew Cliff Gorman, I used to wait in a, I was, was a waiter in a restaurant that was a very showbiz restaurant. What was that? It was called Orso Restaurant in um, in Times Square. So all these people came in all the time. So Cliff Gorman came in and, and Roy Scheider came in a lot. You know, so I knew all the backstories of some of this stuff as well. But Fosse had such, we haven't talked, he had such a distinct form of choreography. And it was small. Every movement had to be absolutely perfect. And he had no patience with people who didn't, understand what he was doing that the isolation of a sometimes it was like a finger move in one dance and that had all the power it's some of the stillness with one finger moving you know he did sweet charity did these amazing choreo and he had a whole style all of his own um and so um that was part of it too and he had no patience for anybody that wanted to just start flowing you know you had to do it exactly (laughs) you had to do his movement no (laughs) I, I got him. I just wasn't. I was never a good enough dancer for him. His dancers were. What a time to be in New York, and what an extra bonus bit of Cooper hinterland. I love that. Can I talk about another thing that I I think is really profound in the movie? I think that the the allusion to his childhood and the fact of you know working as a tap dancer late at night on his own in this burlesque, burlesque. vaudeville 
you know, really sketchy world in which, um, you know, he, you see a scene where this group of um, older burlesque dancers sort of surround him. Um, And then of course he goes onto stage and he's tap dancing and he realizes that he like has, there's a stain on his pants and everyone's laughing at him. Um, That moment of humiliation is so extreme. And I feel like, it's like a key to this deep human frailty um, that when people are that deeply humiliated, it often sort of come, it re-manifests in these very dysfunctional ways and sort of his, the hypersexuality of like everyone will want to have sex with me feels like it springs out of this moment of his like, humiliation and 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 victimization in a certain way and Mm -hmm. and i love that that is also in it's so specifically and tightly shown and it's so extreme that it you feel it to your core in a way that a person would hang on to and carry that moment of humiliation their entire Mm -hmm. lives um and that's also based on a moment in his life so there's just this way in which I think he's truly mining his own unconscious and conscious experience mm. to inform how messy and also how glorious life is, right? Like it's it's yeah. doing both things all the time, but he gives us he gives us places we can point to that say like, "Ooh, that happened to that person and then that person like stuff grew out of that." Um, you know, so, so there's just all kinds of clues like that through the movie of the intensity of uh, Mm -hmm. humans experience. Yeah. Yeah. Did, have you, have you shown this movie to a lot of people? Is it a movie that you show to people or? I've actually shared it with, um, a lot of students. Um, cause I, cause I feel like it is a movie about process and about making things and the struggle to make things. And, um, you know, I try to share with them in some ways, like why this was something that was so mind blowing to me, because it was just like, it seems so impossible to me to make something like this. Um, it's a huge concept. It's a yeah. huge concept. <laughs> it's life and death. Yes. It's your whole life. It's a, And um, as I was reading about the making of this, Fossey himself does say like, I needed to make this movie to cope with some of the pain in my life. Mm. And I do think that that's what um, this sort of extreme creativity does, like, you know, pushing the lean back as far as you can, you get back into the pleasure of something that looks really good or snaps or, you know, like, and um, I don't know, that connects me back to the ending scene where I just adore Ben Vereen's performance. Um, And I think he's channeling this incredible thing of like, how do we... Um, re-channel pain into something, you know, that might be ridiculous or might be over the top, but is like the razzle-dazzle of show business is in some ways like this response to extreme pain. What about the scene? This one I kind of forgot about, and it was so kind of almost strange at the time where he's He's escaped from his room. He's pulled off his thing. He's wandering the hospital. He's escaped. He had 
he should be. It's basically what's going to kill him, I think, um, in the end. And then there's that woman who's in pain from cancer. Yeah. I mean, I mm. just said it was cancer. I don't know what it is, but yeah. she's in pain and he goes up and he kisses her and mm. tells her he loves her. That was like, mm. that was a, a, a mind blowing scene into itself. I mean, also that, that to know that one is loved as one dies in the moment of, of death is profoundly valuable, it would seem. And that's what he recognizes. And in a sense, it feels like that's what he's that's what he is manifesting in this film and when he did actually die he was in the arms of gwen verdon his his ex-partner right. and and i mean it's it's a kind of beautiful thing and so it is all about the complexities and messiness of humanity and at the same time it evokes love which is which is beautiful and what and cinema kj i know you talk about cinema as you know it has the ability to to resurrect people in this case it also has the ability to show them dying before they die in exactly the same way it's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing cooper i'm aware that our time is nearly up okay. talking of mortality okay so lightning round cooper, lightning round take let's it away. go into it what is the most bizarre or weirdest <laughs> thing that has happened to you in a cinema? So one of the things I love is finding out that someone I know was in the same movie theater as me in the past. So it's like, it's, it's really hard to like figure out it, like, oh yeah, sure. We saw a movie around the same time, but to actually know that you were in the same screening in the same theater, you can almost never do. But, um, I was telling this story once about being at Cannes and watching Wild at Heart. And there's the moment where the dog picks up a hand that's been severed off of a body. Yeah. And this French man just stood up and started screaming and like, you Americans are crazy. What is wrong with you? What is wrong with you? And the person I was telling to this, the story to was like, I was there too. So it was like, that's what I, that was my moment. So, so that the friend was there, but also just the guy standing up and screaming at <laughs> and and I I mean the I've I've seen that a couple of times where people like lose their mind, mind. in relation to the movie. I um, also saw it um, happen at Lincoln Center with Adam Sandler's um, the Paul Thomas Anderson Adam Sandler movie, where the mm -hmm. sound was mixed really high and someone just had like a fit and started screaming at the at the screen <laughs> and they had to be taken right. out on a stretcher. <laughs> I remember in, in Berlin too, the Berlin Film Festival, it was, if it was politically wrong and they were pissed off by it, people would go up and put their hands, if they could reach up in front of the projector. And to like, block to the block, light? Uh, to block the image. Wow. Like, we're not going to look at that. We will not accept it. You know, we wow. will not. That is so <laughs> amazing. Our final question for you, KJ, is what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or would choose to give? Mm. You know, I love um, Sidney Lumet's book called Making Movies. Mm -hmm. And um, apparently his dad gave him this piece of advice of just love your actors, even if you, you know, even if you hate the script, love your actors. And I think I took that, like, I think it's something that I feel when I work, but I, I try to just love who I'm filming. Mm. Mm. That's, That's actually great advice because it's it's a mindset that you have to put yourself into of acceptance. 
to to see it and not trying to control it. It's in a way, love is lack of control. You know, you don't want, can you just mm. do this for me and be this way for me so it looks better in my camera? No, it's like, if you love them, it's going to all be okay. And they'll probably perform for you because of it. So, yeah. And I think one of the, one of the reasons why camera work has been so meaningful as like a way to grow as a person is that it makes me stop talking so that like my impulse to control other people Mm -hmm. or to interrupt other people is thwarted by doing camera work. And so it, it, it forces me to accept more in other people's behavior Wow. So it's like, yeah. Well, this takes us back to, it's called (laughs) empathy. It also takes us back to um, all that jazz. And so while the, while that incredible end scene plays us out, I just want to remind our wonderful audience, I want to thank KJ for coming and talking to us about uh, all that jazz directed by Bob Fosse in 1979. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. It also won, um, four Oscars in 1980 for score, direction, costume design, film editing, nothing for for performances, which is kind of insane to me. Um, But it's it's more difficult to find than it should be. But you can find it, Criterion, uh, have it um, as a DVD. I'm not sure it's on the on the channel, but we found it. Do watch it. You'll love it. And KJ, thank you so much. And Cooper, thanks for sharing your (laughs) I love that you auditioned for Fosse, Cooper. That's incredible. We all did. Let's go out. (laughs) We're all still auditioning for Fosse. Also, this this I began this film with a gasp. I ended this movie on a gasp, where he's being zipped into Into a body bag bag as Ethel Merman sings. There's no business like show business. If you'd like to share the film that blew your mind, send us an email to stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com. The Film That Blew My Mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo. And to find more of their work, go to goatrodeodc.com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael at Required Viewing. Graphics by Lee Fenvis. Special thanks to Trevor Groth, Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones? And maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left, tell your friends. <laughs>